What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. <sighs> Let's see. Let's pull up the list here. What are we talking about today? Oh, uh, do you hear? Hyper Light Drifter. Oh, yeah. Got a co-op mode this week. That's crazy. Of course it's local co-op. You know, I don't <laughs> understand the point of that anymore. Does anyone do local co-op? That's a good At question. But anymore? Hyper Light Drifter is <laughs> kind of a, a fast-paced game, right? It would be kind of it would be pretty hard to do without a high-speed internet connection. That's true. It would be hard to implement. It, lag, lag. If there's any lag, you could. It would ruin could, the whole thing. <laughs> the whole experience. not work out. Dang, yeah. what that? Oh, here I'll tell you though, I don't do local. Although I do sometimes uh, with my wife on the Switch. This game's on the Switch, right? Hyper Light Drifter. Yeah, it is. So. Maybe that's what it's made for. Maybe less for the PC people and more for the the Switch people. Yeah, here's here's a GIF on Twitter of two guys playing at the same time. Mm. Um, uh, Teddy Deef, I guess he's a uh, one of the devs. Says all I want for my birthday is everyone to know our action RPG Hyper Light Drifter has full story co-op. So if you're looking for E.g. Zelda co-op or Secret of Mana type play. Please enjoy local friendship. He puts local in brackets. Local friendship on PC, Mac, Linux, Switch, PS4, or Xbox One. There you go. Um, now, so I think the way that this works, I should have probably just pulled up the article on it. But I'm pretty sure the way that it works is that like the 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 first player has to sacrifice like one of their health mm. in order to like bring in the other person but if that person dies you can kind of just keep doing that uh okay yeah he says right here i'm proud of the co-op design or how it how it turned out simple but strategic player 2 can respond infinitely getting 5 hp but the cost of one, or at the cost of 1 hp taken from player 1 so player two can take more risks with that five times multiplier. But like using health packs, player two's response stuns player one for a moment. So timing is crucial. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, because like, you know, Hyper Light Drifter has... Uh, actually, I don't know if anyone was seeing that. Was anyone seeing that? I don't think they were seeing that. Hold on. Let me put no, that up the gift for the... I forgot that I have to uh, switch... Over here in uh, disc or in uh, OBS, now you can see it. Yeah, so here's the GIF. Shows the the two players playing alongside each other. But yeah, so in order to bring this player two in, player one will get stunned for a second, and then uh, player two will have five health points and can take more risks because you can just infinitely respond them. But it it takes yeah. a one hit point away from the player one character. So, you know, I was thinking about that and about, like, balance, right? I think that that's a pretty good way of handling it because it's a really fast-paced game, like you're saying. Um, and so, like, even being stunned for, yeah, for just bit. momentary, depending on where you're at, could be, like, pretty fatal. <laughs> so you have to, like, do it at the right time. But you can just send player two up forward to just, like, go and, like, Kill a bunch of guys while maybe player one hangs back a little bit. I don't know. I want to try it and see 
how it affects the difficulty because I think it would make it a lot easier. Maybe that's the point. But I don't have anybody around here who plays uh, Hyper Light Drifter, so sorry, not gonna find out. <laughs> Anyways, Hyper Light Drifter is one of my favorite games, and um, I'm always down in uh in any kind of like RPG like that for for co-op. I I wish more games had co-op like um Secret of Mana did. Uh, in Sega Nintendo 3. Like, oh, Parker yeah. and I have yeah. played the crap out of Sega Nintendo 3, and the game's almost only fun if you're playing it with someone to me. Like, you can play it on your own. It's fine. But, like, when you're playing with buddies in Sega Nintendo 3, it's, like, way better. So, if you like Hyper Light Drifter, check that out. Um, okay. Asen was saying that he watched a little bit of One Punch Man Season 2. We, uh, Talked about how much we liked the first one. Our highest viewed video yeah. on the channel is a One Punch Man video. <laughs> yeah, and you talk about how much you love it. I, I may, I may make a One Punch Man season two video. Um, you, as you can predict, the whole concept is likely to get old at some point, but they they quickened the pace a little bit because the animation studio changed, and it's just it's not the same level of animation. It doesn't look the same. Um, in some mm. ways, it looks a little more. I don't know, like grungy, realistic, I guess, but it's way less charming. And some of the characters that they've introduced are just not, they're not as good. It's not as good, unfortunately. But season twos are often not as good as season ones. So that may just be, you know, may just be how it is. So that was actually one of the things I think that was suggested in a Discord to talk about today's. Or maybe, I can't remember where I saw it. I looked at like 7,000 video topics between what we have and what you guys suggested today. But we were thinking about doing something on, I think it was like, how long can a story go before it inevitably turns bad or something like that? Mm -hmm. Um, what, What is it? Because like, One Punch Man was almost like every episode was kind of self-contained. I guess they had sort of like an arc over the course of the season where he was like, he became a, a registered hero, like the really yeah, low yeah. class one sort of worked his way up and he was sort of like training the cyber, uh, what's the guy who, who's like his apprentice or whatever. Forget his name. Yeah. Yeah. The guy I can't remember either. Anyways, <laughs> but it was kind of like just every episode, felt pretty self-contained so like where are they going with it in season two is it pretty much the same like he's still just stronger than everything and he's bored or is it yes but he he encounters a little more challenge i guess this time around but what's there is one there's one character that he's um he's he's i guess you would call him kind of like the opposite of one punch man he is incredibly weak but he looks super buff and he's got like scars on his face and he looks you know, he has this reputation of um, being like super strong because he accidentally just happened to be at the right, wrong, right place at the right time, I guess. And people thought that he did this amazing thing. And so everyone's afraid of him and nobody will mess with him. But he's actually, in reality, he's incredibly weak. So it's kind of like the opposite character to One Punch Man. So, like, oh. that's funny. And it turns out that guy's really good at video games, though. <laughs> so One Punch Man will play video games with that guy, and that guy will beat him up. Anyway, it's funny. Like, they're still funny at moments, and it's not, like, it's not, like, completely different. It's just not as charming, I guess. I'd probably put it that way. Yeah, because, like, as far as 
the story goes, right? Like, I I feel like that gimmick yeah. will have worked for one season, where it's yeah, like, it's not something you keep, can stretch. <laughs> they keep making you feel like that. Oh, this might be it. Yeah. This might be the time that someone will really challenge him. But then, yeah, nah. One punch takes the guy out, and that's it, always it. Always turns out that way, and that's I part know. of the humor of it. Yeah. But like, can you really stretch that out again for a whole extra season, or yeah, is, it's, do you have to finally introduce something to sort of shake it up? Or you just leave the art as it is and just walk away from it? You know, you don't have to. You don't. It doesn't have to evolve into a new thing. It can just stay just leave what it, it was and just always be what it was. And that season will always be there, and and it will never have continued. And it's great, you know. Well, how I don't know anything about the manga though, because I know the manga. Yeah, the manga's gone on for forever, long, and right? that's that's a good point. I don't know how that keeps it up. Although <laughs> manga, you can read a whole episode in a manga in like four minutes. Um, yeah, doing it in a, in a TV show where everything's stretched out longer, it's it's just. I don't know. It's a it's a bit of a waste of resources, I guess. Alan says you might want to watch Mob Psycho One. Everyone tells me about that. It's like the other story that the creator. It's did. yeah, yeah, and it's the one that shows that the creator of One Punch Man is actually a pretty talented artist. It's just he he purposely drew One Punch Man really bad. But um, yeah, he did Mob Psycho. I I haven't I haven't seen any of it yet. Everyone's been telling me about it ever since I put that video out. People have been talking about it, but I I still haven't seen it. Well, there you go. I is it on like Netflix or where can you watch well, it? Mob Psycho. That's a good no, question. no, no. One Punch season two. Oh, One Punch season two. Well, some of it's on YouTube, <clears throat> and <laughs> I don't know exactly where to watch the rest of it. <laughs> I can see it otherwise. I'm not saying I watched it on YouTube. I'm just saying some of it's on YouTube, and I don't know where else to find it. I don't know how people get away with that because like we couldn't even upload that video you made on One Punch Man forever because they kept yeah even though it was just clips that was that was that was stupid (laughs) but it is um a different company that made it so i don't know if if the same exact rules apply the the distributor is probably the same so i don't know davros is saying secret netflix and i think what he means by that is you log into netflix but with your vpn you use a vpn yeah and you go to another country for a minute and you watch a bunch of somewhere (laughs) else yep (laughs) it looks Uh, like it might be on crunchyroll or and hulu oh crunchyroll okay okay but i gotta ask this legit um I'm not an anime person. I think everyone knows that now. Yeah. But uh, Evangelion just came to Netflix. Yeah. Which is supposed to people make comparisons to Xenogears with that. Yeah, that was the big, like, 1980s, I think. Like, the big anime from that, like, whole decade. Maybe the um, more 90s. I have not watched it ever. Um, should I watch that, or should I watch One Punch Season 2? I can only handle one anime... <laughs> A year. Which a one year. should it be? <laughs> well, I'll let the I'll let the chat answer that one. I guess I am currently working on a Xenogears like story analysis video right now. I'm actually um, going to be doing a collaboration for that video with uh, Pat Holloman from uh, the Game Design Forum. He's been on our podcast once in the past. 
uh, wrote a lot of really good books yeah. uh, on Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VII, uh, Super Mario World. Um, dude's awesome. So we're kind of working together on a script for a uh, for a Xenogears video. Maybe it would be a good idea to watch Evangelion. Now, I, I if I'm not mistaken, Evangelion's only like twenty something episodes long, right? Well, I think it went on longer than that, but is it just like one season or is it like two or if it's not too long, I might give it a shot while Yeah, I'm... I was going to say One Punch Man season 2 will be shorter. So depending on if yeah. you have any time commitments. Uh people are saying Eva is 26 episodes. Yeah, Made in Abyss is very good. You might want to watch Made in Abyss, Mike, and ditch the other two. Uh, made, in made, made in what, Abyss. What is that? What is that about? Um, so it's very video game oriented. Actually, it's very um, it can it, it, they take video gamey themes, I guess, and and put it into an anime. But it is essentially there's like a town on the edge of this massive like pit that goes into the ground, and it's huge. You know, it's like miles and miles across. And the further down you go into the pit, the more mysterious it becomes and and the more or the fewer people who've ever been that deep. And there's like a sickness that comes with it. There's certain kinds of monsters that um, live on different levels. Mm. And there's different like artifacts that can be found that kind of give hints to, you know, what this thing is. It's just this big mystery. So these these, Mm. you know, this group of people decide they're going to go all the way down to the bottom. And I don't want to give away too much. They're young people, very young people. <laughs> and it it starts out so, like, fun, cutesy, innocent, and it becomes absolutely brutal by the end. It is it is so – it's very interesting. It's one of the best oh. um, anime that I've seen in a, in a very long time. Made in Abyss. Well, yeah, it gets like – and I wish I knew that ahead of time. I watched the first two episodes, and I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this with my wife. So I invite her over and she's very, you know, she doesn't watch difficult things. And as the show goes on, it becomes very difficult. And there was there was a couple scenes in particular that were like, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry. I should not have had you watch this with me. I had no idea it was going here. I'm so sorry. So uh, man, you you'd probably funny. like it a lot. It's very good. I love watching things that make me want to die inside. Curl yeah. Up. This kind of does that a little bit, it, but it, you, if you've if you've ever seen the art style, hope. it's so um, it's almost, I don't know, you may not like it as much, but it's almost like chibi-ish. It's almost, it's very like these are very young, these are kids who are going down into the abyss, mm. and it looks very cutesy, but so don't it starts do not, off. It's yeah. it's it wants me to think it's a moe, and then it becomes uh, well, not it's that. not even as much moe. It's like it's more chibi. It's more just like. Uh. Just like chibi, I guess it, it's just like super cutesy, not like sexy cutesy, just like 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 little tiny little kid cutesy, you know. <laughs> uh, Riker's beard says Eva is the quintessential edgy, depressed fourteen-year-old anime. Okay. Well, I don't know, man. Uh, I'll think about it. But it's it's it appears that it's not too long. Twenty six episodes is pretty good, but it looks like okay, there's yeah. a movie. That's how much Cowboy Bebop was. So Yeah. Looks like there's a movie the that goes along with it. They ran out of budget, which is another thing people compare to Xenogears is the ending is uh, rushed or it's mm. weird somehow. Interesting. Honestly though, I've heard that like 
he, the creator of Evangelion, really liked the ending he did, or like there was a real strong purpose in it. It was very abstract though and symbolic. Sure. But then like the fans were pissed and they like sent death threats and they were like demanding that he alter it, you know, kind of how people do. And then the movie was his response to that kind of like fan culture. So he like gave them what they wanted, but at this, but you know, in, in like a sort of a sadistic way, right? <laughs> like trying to get yeah. back at them for how they treated him about his original ending. Huh. That's what I've heard. I don't know. Interesting. But I'm kind of interested in it, but Maiden Abyss sounds good. I think I might try that one. I don't know. We'll see. I'll decide some other time. Riker's Beard says, honestly, though, you should skip both and get around to watching Babylon 5. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I should do that. Yeah. But if I talk about Babylon 5 on this podcast, no one will watch it. If I talk about Evangelion, like 90,000 people will probably watch it. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to hear me talk about anything other than anime and JRPGs. That's, dude. It's not my fault, man. I don't have a <laughs> I was going to say, you might have... Uh... Well, it kind of is my fault, to be honest. But yeah, you might have led them that way a little bit. It is my fault. I take full responsibility for all the weebs <laughs> in this community. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, last thing, <laughs> now that we've talked about how no one wants to hear me talk about anything other than JRPGs, I'm going to talk about Chernobyl instead. Oh, perfect. Um, so I watched Chernobyl. Uh, it's an HBO miniseries about um, the nuclear disaster at Chernobyl in 1986, um, which is in the Ukraine at the time that was Soviet Union. Um, mm. Actually, is it still technically part of... It's not part of Russia now, is it? Or did they... No, it's not. Well, some of it is, unfortunately. Some of it is, right? Russia decided to invade... They invaded it, right? Crimea yeah. and Don, Don, Donsk whatever. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple places that are disputed territory, but UN recognizes it as Ukraine, but I think okay. they've decided to let Crimea go. Just let Russia have it. Glad Kaysen's here. He knows things about the world <laughs> that I don't know, but yeah. uh, the show was really good. Um, most people <laughs> will get an HBO subscription so that they can watch Game of Thrones for a few weeks or whatever, and then like they just cancel it. It's kind of like a big joke. Like Game of Thrones ends, people just walk away. But <laughs> yeah. if you still have it, or if you, I don't know, if there's anything else on the platform that interests you, Chernobyl is a good addition to their kind of library of things to watch. Um, it was phenomenally well written, mm. really well paced. Uh, the the I don't know. It's just the, the acting was amazing. Um, it was very informative, very accurate, historically accurate. I think like the only thing that they did to sort of simplify it was that the team of scientists that were working to try and like solve this problem. I mean, because I mean, the, the, it was a nuclear meltdown. Right. And there was yeah. so many potential problems that they avoided that like the heroic efforts of the Russian people to like prevent this from becoming something where like the entire continent would just be uninhabitable basically uh it's it's really inspiring stuff kind of like showing you the heart of like the russian people who sacrificed themselves to save millions and millions of lives but um the only thing 
that at least that I could see from sort of sort of a cursory glance at like uh, what really was truly historically accurate or not was that they sort of, they had a huge team of scientists that were working together to try and solve this problem. And they sort of like took that whole huge team and they just put it into one character. Um, so they have essentially two scientists in the show that are sort of like, you know, working together to like, okay, uh, we've, we've poured sand and boson on the fire to get like the, f- to douse the fire. But like the heat in the fuel is just going to like essentially melt through the ground and contaminate the water supply that runs like, what is like the Kiev river or something like that, that would like basically just poison the water for like an enormous number of people, like all of Ukraine, Uh like every, like this gigantic, gigantic area would be totally uninhabitable. So anyways, they were trying to like figure out, okay, what do we do? Like, how do we, it's, it's, it's an absolutely fascinating story. Um, that I think might be one of the best. I I mean, I don't want to call it a movie. It's a mini series. It's like an hour long Mm -hmm. episode, five episodes long. So, but I would classify it as a film personally, like one of the best films I've seen in a super long time. Um, just really, really, really well executed. Great drama. The acting is phenomenal. The only thing I didn't love about it and I'm not sure why this choice was made. I haven't really researched it. Is that like it's it's this shows in English, but it's about people living in the Soviet Union. Uh, but they're 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 like British actors. They don't have like Russian accents or anything. I yeah. felt like that would have been a little better <laughs> if like they at least spoke with Russian accents if they were speaking English. But um, in any case, I mean, aside from that one issue I, I it's like one of the best freaking things i've ever seen and i recommend everyone like look into it because it was it was super good um anyways i don't want to talk too much about it because i don't want anyone who def- decides to watch it i don't want to like spoil anything not that like it's like something where spoilers would necessarily ruin the show because it's like about right it's an historic something event. that <laughs> happened but like in terms of how it's made, like how it's paced, like the choices they make, just experience it for yourself. It's super good. I loved it. Cool. I will watch it at some point. Yeah, definitely do. Uh, okay. So here's kind of the main topic we decided to talk about a little bit today. Uh, why do people demand realism? And... Mm-hmm. This is for gaming as well as movies. Um, something that I was thinking about a little bit this week, because um, this is something that is is coming soon. But uh, it, in the place where I work, we're starting like a movie review show that'll have a YouTube channel. I'll announce that and give you guys links to that when that's all up and ready to go. But um, Spider-Man Far From Home comes out this week. And so we wanted to do like a test to like feel it out, see like what works and what doesn't about the panelists we have and sort of the show structure. So we were we were going to review Spider-Man 3 <laughs> as like a warm up, which we all considered like the worst Spider-Man movie. However, I've not yeah. seen the amazing Spider-Man 2, which is apparently oh. the worst one. The one with Jamie Foxx is like the Electro Man. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I never Apparently saw that. that one's worse, but I never saw huh. that one. Anyways, huh. we decided to review Spider-Man 3 because people love to hate that movie. So we thought it would be fun to do. But as I was sort mm. of like putting my thoughts together on like what I was going to say about that movie, um, I came across a channel. Dang it, I should shout out the channel. Hold on. Because it's important to do that. <laughs> no. uh, realism versus formalism. Channel is called Patrick H. Willems. Uh, it's actually a pretty popular YouTube channel. It's got about uh, 250,000 subscribers. He's really great. Uh, does a lot of really good... In fact, I'll just put it on the screen so you guys can see it. He does uh, really good... I watched uh, several of his videos. Here he is here. And uh, he does film analysis. It's really good stuff. If you haven't seen it, go and check it out. Um, anyways, I saw a video of his on um, realism and formalism. Did you learn about these terms in film school, Casey? I did not, actually. I did not learn about them. So I guess I'll just sort of like start our conversation by like kind of defining. I'll probably do it in a pretty crude summation and i might be a little bit like not totally accurate but the idea i think we'll get across right uh back when like film was really starting to become it was a new art form we'll put it that way like back silent film or just past that sort of era um there was again i can't remember names I've said this over and over on the podcast. I'm horrible with names. I, my yeah. memory does not go with names, so I can't remember names very well. There's one guy who had this um, uh, philosophy about film that it should be moving towards realism as much as possible. Like that, that the the goal of it should be to like reflect the real world, right? And then you have like other schools of thought moving towards what's called formalism, which is the other side, you know? So mm. realism in, in like filmmaking terms would be like, okay, we're not going to do very many cuts. We're going to shoot mostly at eye level. We're going to not use a lot of music as little or almost no non-diegetic music as possible. We're mm. really just trying to like recreate very realistically a scenario. It's like the far end of the spectrum over here. Right. Right. And formalism on the other side is like, let's use all these crazy techniques, music, editing, uh, visual effects, um, you know, all kinds of uh, more abstract ways of putting something together to elicit ideas or feelings or whatever. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a focus on the techniques, like the filmmaking techniques and and arranging them in these sort of abstract ways to create like a, a the idea or, or to present the idea to the viewer, right? Um, so essentially what this creates is dichotomy, if that's the right word, uh, <laughs> where you have this yeah. very unrealistic abstract way of presenting the concept or you're trying to just like in the most realistic way possible, like recreate the idea or feeling or whatever. Right. Um, and these, are, there, there's not like a right or wrong way. These are just two very different approaches 
to an art form. Um, and you know, I was, I was, well, in in the video, uh, he talks about how the Hollywood blockbuster, which was sort of pioneered or, or created or at least like solidified with Jaws and Steven Spielberg, right, in like 1975. But then after that, you have George Lucas coming in with Star Wars, and it just kind of like you know became basically Hollywood's biggest money maker ever since right. <laughs> summer blockbusters yeah. are like what Hollywood where they get all their money now. Anyways, that was sort of like this like unifying central <coughs> um, philosophy, the best of both worlds kind of a thing, right? Like meeting somewhere in the middle between the two things yeah. where uh, you're meant to like believe in the, the drama you're meant to like feel like it's real. You're meant to feel like you're there with the characters, but they have a soundtrack playing over the top, right? The characters don't hear that non-diegetic music. That's just there to heighten or elicit the emotions. So they're using formalist uh, techniques like that, but at the same time, they still want you to believe in it, right? So it's kind of like meeting between the two. Yeah. Um, and so... Before that, though, like you, you go back into the 1940s and 50s, mm. uh, some of the most popular films at that time were uh, like musicals and stuff, which yeah, are they, yeah. they, they're formalist. They, they lean that way. Like people, I, I, again, we talk about abstraction a lot with JRPGs and stuff, yeah. right? Like you're not meant to believe the whole town erupted in song and dance (laughs) (laughs) out of nowhere. Right. It's just, they're expressing the feeling uh, like one of my favorites is uh, the music man and the whole town starts singing and dancing about the Wells Fargo wagon coming down the street. And they're all excited about what did they, what did the Wells Fargo wagon bring? You know, did they bring something for me? So there's this feeling of excitement in the small town rural town where nothing exciting ever happens and it's meant to express how stoked people are for something exciting to happen in town for once like but but we're not really believing that an entire town in harmony having memorized the dance moves and <laughs> the the lyrics and, <laughs> the, and everything else all kind of came out together and choreographed a dance scene and a song <clears throat> yeah to welcome the Wells Fargo wagon to come in, right? So that's a formalist technique or a series of techniques to express an idea. And that was that was really, really popular. Or, or that was kind of more what filmmaking, or I guess uh, mainstream Hollywood filmmaking was more kind of in that realm at that time. That's like what people went to the movies to see. Musicals were huge. Yeah, But Steven be- Spielberg... Go ahead. What'd you say? Well, it became kind of like a kid's thing. Like people don't really associate musicals anymore with yeah. something most people right. would be And that was watch. mostly Disney because of um, yeah. the animated films of the 80s and 90s and stuff. They were all musicals. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, um, Steven Spielberg and filmmakers at his time, sort of when the Hollywood blockbuster became the most popular kind of movie, they, they moved it a little bit more into this uh what what's called classicism so like 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 we said already a meeting between the two things hmm. um so anyways 
try, tying this as quickly as I can back into like the whole Spider-Man thing because I was trying to think of because I knew that the other panelists were just going to hate on Spider-Man three. I, le- I knew at least one of them was going to. So I, I, I wanted to have some different kind of perspective on it just so that it would be a more interesting conversation than everyone just hating on the movie. Mm. Um, but it, when you move into the 90s with Batman, like the beginning of like superhero movies that were actually decent or okay, passable movies, yeah. uh, Batman was Tim Burton. And Tim Burton yeah. is a very, very formalist filmmaker. He's yeah. all about being wacky and weird and expressing ideas yeah. without being naturalistic. Or yeah, it's very interpretive. You, you have yes. to really dig into Tim Burton's material to find out what he was trying to say. He doesn't tell you up front. It's very, yeah. very interpretive. Um, and so that was, you know, those movies were pretty popular. Those, those first two Batmans. And then yeah. they were pretty, they got pretty bad after that, but still they got pretty bad. <laughs> they were very vibrant. Like there wasn't, it wasn't, trying at all to come across as realistic no and I, it was all I, clearly like stage you know set kind of stuff it wasn't it's not like they even went into like an actual city and filmed a robbery it was right. like clearly a set on a stage a set. with yeah. green lights and red lights and all this theatrics right yeah it's very performative very theatrical yeah. Um, especially that fourth one that was really bad Batman and Robin and Robin yeah yeah way. Yeah. I think that the director had come from theater. I forget his name. Uh, right. Shoemaker, Schumacher, I think was the name of the director of that film. Anyways, uh-huh. he had a he had a background in more theatrical uh, sort of directing and so that sort of thing. That's what I remember reading about him. I, I might be wrong about that, but anyways, superhero movies at that point were kind of at a low, and yeah. it was it was X Men and Spider Man that really started this whole craze we've been in for two decades now. (laughs) Obsession of superhero movies uh, as Hollywood blockbusters. Um, Mm -hmm. Slowly, yeah. And I remember seeing Spider-Man and loving that movie when it came out. And I, I I think the understanding the time period is pretty important. This is like right on the back of Lord of the Rings. 2001, 2002, maybe, yeah. And, like, the industry was making some pretty... Well, and Star Wars, too. The the Star Wars prequels. So, CGI had come, like, really far in, like, that short span of time as we were moving from, like, Jurassic Park in the early 90s, but especially at the turn of the century. And it was becoming something where, like, oh, we can do these characters flying through the air and doing all these crazy stunts now because CGI has gotten to a place where we can make that look passable or, or you know people can believe in it uh especially for spider-man he's like freaking like web slinging through a city like yeah i remember yeah. there was a spider-man movie that i rented as a kid that came out in like the 80s or something it was like, like live so, action yeah it was so what? bad I never it was heard so it. bad anyways uh <laughs> anyways i remember loving that and and seeing spider-man 2 and loving that and then like spider-man 3 everyone hated and here's yeah. where I thought it got really interesting is that Spider-Man one and two came out before Batman begins in the dark Knight, And then Spider-Man three came after those two, I think, right? Did 
Did Dark Knight come up before Spider-Man 3? I think it did. Three, probably three, yeah. No, Dark Knight, Batman Begins, definitely. I don't know about Dark Knight, though. It might have been just after, but Batman Begins for sure. Anyways. Yeah, definitely. My point is, is that Chris Nolan stepped into that genre, which at that point, I think, especially Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies, they were more... Spider-Man 3 came out first. Okay, so they... They had this tone to them, and I'll get into Sam Raimi as a filmmaker in a minute. He's the Evil Dead. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of a formalist himself, not necessarily trying to make things feel realistic. That's just his style. But, anyways, he had he had a tone in the Spider-Man films that was a little bit more like the the early comics that were like you know. disasters happening in the city and people gather around and point up in the sky. It's Spider-Man, you know, like that feel (laughs) like cheesy campy feel to it. Uh, I think people forget how even Spider-Man one and two really like embraced that tone. Sure. And they remember it a certain way. And I think that as soon as Chris Nolan stepped in and was like, we're pushing this comic book adaption Hollywood blockbuster a little bit harder in the direction of realism. Yeah. And that was so popular and people liked that so much. It was such yeah. a fresh take on that genre at the time that I think that people saw Spider-Man three, which had other problems for sure. And, and you know, the, I don't want to get into that because I want to kind of bring this back to video games as much as possible for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. There are definitely other problems with it. This is not the only thing. That's not what I'm getting at. But I think that it people had this expectation about like, okay, we need the drama to feel really real and believable, especially for the content in Spider-Man 3 where like best friends are trying to kill each other and you have like the Venom symbiote and like, you know, people's association with that. You know, it's like a little bit of a darker Spider-Man story. Um, Anyways, people felt like, I, I remember at the time being like, people not believing or not feeling it was realistic like some of the things that happened in the movie. And as I was thinking about that concept, it's like, do people really think, people really believe that a story about a kid that gets bit by a radioactive spider and fights (laughs) goblins up in the sky, like flying around throwing pumpkin bombs at people, do people really think that needs to be made to feel realistic? Sorry, I don't know what the last thing that you heard me saying there before you left. Um, I was saying that um, but do people 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 were like complaining about? Um, I've heard people complaining about realism. It doesn't feel realistic that Peter Parker's like dancing. It feels so awkward and doesn't feel like anyways people complaining about realism in some of these stories that are about a person getting bit by a radioactive spider and i know it's kind of weird (laughs) fighting a goblin in the sky who throws pumpkin bombs and incinerates people like people having this tendency to be like i want it to feel more realistic right I, th- I think this applies to video games, especially during the time, too, which were becoming more and more lifelike in terms of what graphics could do. That's a good point, yeah. 
and they're really pushing realism. But it was like, I don't know. It's it's hard for me to sort of like pinpoint like what, where I'm getting at with the point here. But like, I don't think realism is the problem or formalism. I think those are two things that are just approaches. But I think whatever tone that you are that you are working with needs to be consistent with the content and the approach, if that makes sense. So. Um, let's say for instance, like, well, okay, I'll, I'll just stick with Spider-Man three for now. Maybe you can think <laughs> of some other stuff from games or something like that. But in Spider-Man three, well, Sam Raimi, director of the evil dead, he will show you something that is like a truly terrifying image. It's like, whoa, it's a jump scare, but he will like within 10 seconds of that image, turn it into something comical by going way over the top with the gore or trying to gross you out really hard or something like that. I think, uh, drag me to hell is another horror he did in more recent times. Yeah. And then I think the last movie that I know of he directed was great. Uh, uh Oz, the great and powerful, that prequel to the wizard of Oz. Hmm. But you look at the colors of that movie and like the style of it and everything like that. It's, it's very much not meant to feel like realistic, right? It's, it's a, it's, more formalist in its approach that's yeah. kind of who he is and and he's a bit of a quirky guy and so he's going to have in one instance something that's truly meant to terrify you or something that's meant to feel dramatic and then the next instance he he's going to try and make you laugh because that's just like what he his philosophy of filmmaking is is meant to kind of do both it's meant to be entertaining it's not necessarily meant to make you feel like it's real or realistic so anyways that's fine. That's that's an approach that can totally work. It works really well in The Evil Dead for people who are into those movies, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, you're laughing one minute and like the next minute you're getting a jump scare. But uh, for Spider-Man 3 in particular, where some of the story content involves like really difficult relationship issues, or at least that's what he's trying to sell you on. Uh, Sandman in that movie, like, you know, his daughter having like some kind of terminal illness and they're really trying to play up the drama of that and him being motivated by that and being desperate and like two best friends literally trying to kill each other and seek revenge and stuff like that. You got like these elements that yeah. it seems at points he's trying to really sell you on those emotions. But then you have like the infamous Peter Parker, like emo dancing yeah. scene. And you have other parts that are just like really written on the nose and they feel really silly. Right. And I think that the problem is not that something isn't more realistic. I think that that's what people say, but I think what, what's really happening is that they're, they're confused by the tone. The, the tone here is indicating something more naturalistic in terms of the way the actors are, re, you know, we're supposed to believe in this heavy, drama or this heavy content but then the next minute like it, it's flipping it and i don't know what to feel you're sending me a little bit of a mixed message here hmm. right and so anyways i guess my whole point that i was trying to arrive at is that like there's this push for when when there is a push for realism like oh this doesn't feel very realistic i don't think especially in something that is more formless let's say um 
a video game with a really cartoony style or something like that. Because people were like, what are you expecting this to be realistic for? Yeah, yeah. It's. I don't think that it's that it's, it's that. It's that there there is probably some inconsistency in the tone. It's not like aligning with the content. They're trying to like make us feel something here that is more grounded, more serious, more dramatic, heavier, whatever. And that's not really suiting the sure. Well, the approach. It's a real feeling. It's not. It's not even a realistic feeling. It's a real feeling, right? So yeah. they're trying to to convey that. Maybe that's its like grounded reality yeah. kind of sense, but well, like I depends on how they do it. I I don't think you've seen Deadpool, but um, like no, that scene where Peter Parker's like being just completely oblivious and like dancing around, something like that wouldn't have felt out of place in Deadpool, which is completely self-aware. Sure. It is a comedy first. Um, even in, they have like, uh, they sprinkle some dramatic moments in there, but there's always some levity to it. The tone is always completely consistent and that's why it works. Um, now I'm trying to think of like an example from video games, right? Well, uh, let's just go with, uh, classic, uh, well, Wind Waker, right? You're coming on the back of Majora's Mask and, and Ocarina of Time which had a certain aesthetic that really worked. There was some, some darker kind of like material in those games, like some kind of scary stuff, like uh, the shadow yeah. temple or even in um, when you're like one of the freakiest things in all of Zelda that I've ever seen. It freaked me out when I played it as a kid, you go underneath to that area where you get the lens of truth in Kakariko. Yeah. The well. Yeah. And there's that, those hands that grab your face. Well, while, and then the big monster shows up, right? Yeah, and he comes at you slowly while you're struggling dude. to get away from like the hand yeah. that's gripping his face. Yeah. That that like that like <laughs> messed me up, dude. That's um, creepy. And I think that's the first time you see the redeads also, the zombie looking dudes. Yeah. And what the fetch are they doing? Like when they jump on you and they start like biting your head and it's yeah. like you have no idea what to do. Actually, it's got, not the first, like first time you see him is when you become an adult and you're outside. Hyrule Castle Town. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, that stuff's all in uh, Kakariko. So they have this um, tone and aesthetic and everything that really, like, worked together. Because, uh, again, there's some really lighthearted moments in those Zelda games, too. Some funny moments and stuff like that. Yeah. But they picked, like, yeah. the right balance between the two things. Um, and then we moved to Wind Waker, and that, like, immediately like freaked everybody out <laughs> in terms of the way it looked, especially when the industry was really moving towards that. Cause that was such a huge jump. Like I, I was yeah. looking at, I don't remember what it was the other day. There's some video. Anyways, it was showing like the, the evolution of a franchise from, and it went from PS one to like PS two. And it's just like, dude, that was like freaking insane, <laughs> massive, massive yeah. jump in terms of, uh, just visuals and graphics. It was just like unbelievable. And yeah. a big part of it too was frame rate. I remember oh, right. when you guys got a GameCube, I didn't have one yet. I came over and I was blown away by the smoothness of Tony Hawk three. I think it was. Sure, you yeah, guys had. Sure. Cause I think that ran at 60 frames per two. second. Pro skater two, I think. Yeah. Cause I think two was on the N64 and PS4. Oh really? And three yeah, was on the three. GameCube. Anyways, that's the first time I think in my life I had ever seen a frame rate higher than 30. Yeah. And I, I was just like, anyways, blown away by the graphical leap there. And of course, even the next uh, generation was a pretty huge leap too. 
But during the early 2000s, there seemed to be this like heavy emphasis on realism, right? Yeah. I think because of that, because all of a sudden realistic stuff seemed possible towards like the late 90s. And it was like, that's just all people wanted. Yeah. And so I wish I had more examples to draw from. So I'm going to kind of throw a blanket statement out there. And I'm, I'm admitting this, obviously. It's, it might not necessarily apply. If people have counterpoints in the comments or something, feel free to you know say so. But it seemed to me that that was sort of like a push in the industry towards darker, grungier, more realistic, yeah. sort of at least graphical-wise. But that didn't necessarily always fit the tone. It was more like a marketing thing. Like, yeah, how sure. realistic can we make it look and feel especially in trailers even if the story doesn't yeah. necessarily call for that there's a there's a inconsistency in tone that i'm talking about maybe it would have been served better in a more formalist approach right um like again nintendo being kind of on the ball with that like understood with wind waker like we can't make the game look this way if this is <laughs> The, the actual like feel that that you know we, we're kind of culminating with this right the story the not, not that the story ever dictates what they do for Zelda games but <laughs> not necessarily um at least well, like yeah. go ahead there's a comment here from um I don't know how to say your name uh scene scene di scene Daikimon. I suppose, um, yeah. saying Japanese game developers, whether it's Zelda, Yakuza, Dragon Quest, or even Persona and Shimigami Tensei, they tend to strike a balance of lighthearted tone with a layer of darkness underneath. I think that's why the darker qualities of Wind Waker are made to be more impactful. The darkness stands out more. It's like a contrast. Oh, using a hard contrast for something like that. Yeah, yeah that's true. Because if everything's realistic, I mean, you you kind of need that contrast, and that's something that maybe maybe stuff like The Dark Knight doesn't really have. I mean, there is maybe one scene in The Dark Knight where uh, Bruce Wayne is having dinner with uh, Harvey Dent, and mm. they're all dressed up. He's got his tuxedo, and it's a nice event, you know, and he's joking about how Batman's crazy. He jumps off rooftops, and who would ever do that, you know? Other than maybe that one scene, <laughs> the whole movie is literally, there isn't much contrast in terms of, like, and I think it's very important to show what, Batman is is working towards what is he trying to save right now Dark Knight's a, a great movie I think it was done very well I wouldn't change anything about it but it is lacking in the sense that there isn't much um lightheartedness in the whole thing because one one of the uh like one of the things that he's fighting for is for people to have the ability to live in that way to have fun and joke and laugh and 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 he's trying to, he's the one that's got to be in the shadows to make sure that everyone else can live a fun life. Yeah, that sacrifice, and, personal sacrifice. Yeah, but they don't really show that. They don't show any of the that happening. They don't show the lighthearted parts of the world. They just show the, the realistic, grungy, Batman-y parts of the world. Well, I want to address, uh, I think what Hydrated Cloth is saying here. A consistent tone is considered better, but it's not as though life has a consistent tone. Consistency in tone is unrealistic. So I think it's important to maybe um, sure. to clarify 
like what I consider consistency in tone doesn't mean that there's only one note or only one tone for the whole movie that you can only have one feeling. It has to be dark and it has to be serious all the time. I think consistency in tone is more about uh, understanding whatever theme you're working with or what the sort of like the what would it be for for a game, right? Like, well, theme works. You do not, want consistent not just the theme not, for sure. Not just the story, though. I mean, like even like the gameplay, like the entire experience. Like, what is it at its core? Like, what's the core experience supposed to be? What's the player supposed to feel when they play the game? Uh-huh. And and making sure that again, you it's it's good to have contrast in in everything you're doing in art. Like contrast is really important. Like it can get so boring if you're just doing one thing for a long time. I, I've I've said this in the past about like sound design, right? When I was doing uh, the sure. sound design on our uh, Star Cart video, um, oh yeah, yeah. I, I wanted the the power of the ship's engines to be felt and like constantly impactful. So I would take them away. I would, I would remind the viewer of what it sounds like in the environment when the ships are not there. We would yeah, hang yeah. for a second after the ships would fly away and we would hear the quiet. We would bring the noise yeah. down. And then in the next shot, when they would like come back it's in, like, it boom. Would, it's very impactful. Yeah. yeah. You get punched in the gut again. That, that yeah. kind of contrast is important all across the board in in art uh, in in your uh, writing for the story you need to have moments where you relieve the tension right you can't have tension all the way through the story otherwise people get acclimated to it and it's no longer tense like it just is fatiguing it's the same with something be too dramatic if there's no comedy to to release that then mm-hmm. it's just like uh like i'm tired of this it's it's a drudgery uh, same thing with something being too lighthearted. It's like they de- never take anything seriously. So you have to have contrast and it has to move. But I think consistency in tone, again, is not so much about just choosing one thing and sticking to that. It's more about like, okay, here's what you're supposed to really get out of this uh, gameplay experience, whether it's what you're supposed to feel when you play the game or you're supposed to feel thrilled. Is it supposed to be like a thrilling action thing? then we should probably spend a majority of the time delivering on that feeling. You know, if this is meant to be a heavy drama, then we need to really pay off in, in a way that will give the person that experience when they leave the theater or when they, you know, done playing the game. So it's more about um, pacing it in such a way to where you can relieve the tension and keep it interesting. But overall, there is a consistency in tone. It doesn't feel like it's at odds with itself. Sure, it's yeah, not yeah. it's not undermining itself with the comedy. The comedy is there to help us feel the right amount of contrast so that we can really well, appreciate the drama. You know what's funny about that is that in Star Wars Episode One, Jar Jar Binks does feel like he's undermining the comedy of Episode One. Yes. Does feel like it's undermining the the theme and the re- and the other elements of of that film. Right. So it was done well in the original trilogy. It was not done well. Yeah. In the prequels. And, you know, it's really hard. This is why I didn't really, like, have a lot of examples off the top of my head. It's hard to pinpoint Mm. this because it is so subjective. I mean, there are some people who legitimately thought Jar Jar Binks was a funny character and he was fine. And it's like, whatever, you know, it's for kids. 
and and what undermines it for one person may not for another but i don't to me that's what i felt while i was watching spider-man 3 was that it was like at least to me the content of that movie lent itself a little bit more to taking itself a bit more seriously than the previous two movies had because they're kind of culminating this whole love triangle story between Harry and Peter and Mary Jane. And right. the two best friends are literally trying to freaking kill each other. That's, mm. that's a little... Too, I guess there probably would be a way, like a Deadpool way, to make that funny and lighthearted and work. But I think yeah. Raimi is really trying to make you feel something in the movie, too. Like, the, the, the scene where Sandman, like, first sort of, like materializes and he's got like that little pendant of his daughter and he tries to reach and grab it by like the sand and his his hand is like sort of and it kind of just like oh he can't grab it and yeah, he can't and, like hold it. and and like they show expression in his face it's it's a really brilliant scene in my opinion like it, i felt something when i watched that they expressed some all these emotions without words and mm-hmm. without like any kind of detailed facial expression because his face is made of this this loose sand but like i thought it was really well done and i felt like that character really worked to show peter he's just a mirror of what harry's doing to him this revenge seeking because they retconned in the dumbest way ever that the sandman guy is the one who killed his uncle ben anyways that was dumb but as (laughs) i forgot that (laughs) as a i guess like uh if you just accept that they needed to do that for the purpose of letting Peter have this seeking revenge sort of like plot or subplot in the story and that he has to learn to forgive the same way Harry has to learn to forgive, you know, if you're, if you're, if the movie's theme is revenge in this way, it's hard for me to accept that he wants me to like really take that seriously in one scene but then over here, he's trying to just like make it lighthearted. It's just entertainment. It's just, eh, it's wacky. And, you know, yeah. to me, it undermined it. It undermined the message. It went too far. The, the two tones were um, too far separated from each other. Yeah. Uh, and so, I don't know, like, again, trying to tie this back into the, the point. realism and formalism are just two different approaches that are both perfectly valid i think where you have problems where people might desire it be one way or move more this way is the fact that you're not using the right tone consistently enough for the approach you chose if you chose a formalist approach but you're trying to really sell people on this heavy deep emotional stuff that's not to say you can't have like a cartoon style and also you know what i mean like you could still do that yeah there's i'm not trying to make i'm just making a a generalized statement about like if you want it to feel realistic then you can't i'm saying you can't at all but generally your tone should try and match that and if it doesn't, people are going to be like, oh, this doesn't feel right because you're just swinging too much between tones and it's kind of undermining sure. the central point. 
Well, you know, Kingdom Hearts has come up a lot in the chat since you've been talking about yeah, that. Yeah, Kingdom and Hearts really undermines itself. Absolutely in my <laughs> oscillating like crazy on the, you know, like what are you going for? And it's partly because they're combining so many different things and they're sort of trying to preserve the elements from those things, like the characters and the stories, but they're so different and it just kind of leads you on this roller coaster that that doesn't it feels very, very disjointed. And you've got some heavy moments with some moments that really just don't make sense and um, some really lighthearted moments. And I think it does that way too much. It, it It's fine for what it is, I guess, because they're trying to combine all the Disney movies. But in terms of just story and it's standalone, just Kingdom Hearts, what it is, it's, it's way too much. Well, yeah, I mean, like, I don't want to talk too much about Kingdom Hearts. I'm not even that educated on it personally. Well, but... but- he does this <laughs> but at least to me the first game felt like it had the right tonal consistency right it, it didn't feel like it was trying to be like a deep or profound game necessarily it wasn't like trying it was just like this is a fun idea and uh you know we have some some like emotional attachment to the, the three characters from what is that? I want to say Outset Island. That's not it. That's a uh, Zelda. Yeah, uh, Destiny uh, Island. Yeah, Destiny Islands in the beginning, right? Destiny. The, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Riku and Sora and uh, Kyrie, right? Yeah. There's there's some emotion that you feel there between those characters, but it's not meant to be like heavy. It's not trying to like purport itself as being profound. And I feel like as it went on, it tried to like give this illusion that. Like, especially in the writing, the way, the poetic way it was written, it's like, this is deep, bro. Like, mm. pay attention. But it's like... But it's so it's, lighthearted. It's, 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 it's <laughs> Disney characters, and it's sure. it's kind of silly. And that's okay, you know? Like, that's kind of the concept yeah. was to begin with. And it, that, why can't we just embrace that, you know? Anyways. Okay. there's There were some other really good comments at, from a while ago. Believe yeah. it or not... Um, Jonah, the man, I did keep your comments. I kind of copied them just for later whenever we had a break. Oh, nice. Um, Jonah, the man, had a very interesting observation. He says, I think the reason we demand realism in fiction is because of something called naive realism. We see the world using ourselves as a center point, so we dislike it when we see something we're not familiar with or cannot comprehend. This may be doubly so for people with high systemizing brains, which is often accompanied by more materialistic worldview that has difficulty grasping the supernatural, fantastical, or otherwise unrealistic. So he also, he continues saying, humans in general are not good at perceiving the world objectively as it is. Instead, we see the world as we are, and our perceptions of ourselves and our minds are heavily distorted with cognitive biases i think the reason we demand realism in fiction is because the world as a whole is becoming more materialistic we are increasingly willing unwilling to accept fantastical or inconsistency in an era where superstition is regarded negatively (laughs) now that last line you know i i think i i I would agree Uh, with them but generally speaking think about objective reality it's actually basically impossible for humans to truly perceive objective reality. So when we talk yeah. about realism or this isn't realistic, what we're really talking about is our us, the way that we have perceived yeah. reality up to this point, which is quite different from other people. That's a very good point, actually. Yeah. yeah. And that's why so, people disagree so hard on 
oh, like yeah. <laughs> whether or not something feels believable or not, right? Like, yeah. I mean, my entire uh, last several years of making videos on the channel and discussing and, um, uh, you know, trying to talk about like whether or not uh, Sephiroth being revealed too early or something in Final Fantasy <laughs> yeah, Remake yeah, sure. is going to be a problem after the storytelling. I mean, it's really opened my eyes to just like, because there's just so many people who like totally disagree, totally see it differently from me, who just like, uh, yeah. we both loved the same original game so much, but, right. but for such totally different reasons. Um, you know, I, 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 I've had some debates with people about whether or not the, the changing the battle system is uh, change, uh, like fundamentally changes the spirit of the game. Um, and it's just, it's crazy how true that is. Like it, it, objective reality. Nobody knows what that is. Everybody has, right. has their reality painted by their own experience. And it, you I sound like I, a stoner. Like what, what is, what is reality, man? <laughs> What's real is just what you're perceiving, or like what what is um in the Matrix? What does what's his name? What does Morpheus say to Keanu Reeves? He says, uh, "Oh, if, what what is real? If you're referring to things that you can see, smell, taste, or touch, then real is simply neurons firing off in your brain because that's yes. where all those signals yes. are interpreted. So, yes. what is real? Is real I the do. neurons in your brain because those same neurons sometimes." give false information to you i forgot about that scene i wish i had yeah. remembered that because i think i did i did a podcast a couple months back where essentially i was uh citing studies about that about how people can essentially see the same thing but have a totally different experience because yeah. you're the way that your brain formed when when your neural connections were made as a baby based on the experiences you had growing up, whether you, you associated that with something negative or positive for just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of things that are completely different from this person over here and their experience. Like yeah. it, it's just about how those neurons are being interpreted in the brain. Right. That is that's, literally that's the, difference. That's, the difference. That's why someone can love this chocolate cake and this person's like, I hate chocolate. Yeah. Like how, how could you hate it? It's so delicious. I taste it. I'm <laughs> interpreting that it's, it's good. How can you not like that? It's crazy. Like how we're right. trapped in these individual minds where we have no concept because our brain chemistry <laughs> And the way that our brains have formed their neural connections are different from other people. We have no way of actually perceiving the world the same way they do. We have to rely on language to try to describe it, but it's like so inefficient to do that. Like it's, yeah. it's crazy. It's really crazy. Dude, I actually have, I have a potentially extremely, what's the word? Controversial example to bring up. <laughs> about this in general. Now, it, it wouldn't be my opinion or anything. It would just be kind of saying the facts. But it's entirely possible for two people to literally think the exact same way but fall on opposite ends of like a, a, of a fight, I guess, mm -hmm. or of like a disagreement. But they, they have the exact same thought, but it's not, it, it's the way that everything's kind of interpreted or maybe it's their social surroundings or whatnot that lead them to where they are. But they actually see the same exact problem and have almost the same exact solution. And my, my example yeah. was going to be something along the lines of like the abortion debate in the United States where you've got one person who could think abortion 
should be illegal except in these cases if like mother's life's in danger or if you know the doctor or whatever if if there's like rape or something like that and then you've got and they're say i'm pro-life right i'm pro-life i believe abortion should be illegal except in these cases then you got these people saying abortion i'm pro-choice abortion should be legal because rape or mm-hmm. incest or life of the mother in danger right now, when you look at those two uh, opinions, right? One person saying, I'm pro-choice because you should be able to have the choice to do this if this bad thing happens to you. And this person saying, I'm pro-life because you shouldn't do it unless this thing happens to you. They actually have the same opinion. opinion. Yeah, They actually are saying like the same thing. But one of them is over here on this camp shouting with a megaphone saying, oh, you're so bad. And the other person's mm-hmm. here shouting with the megaphone saying, oh, you're so bad. And they have the exact same opinion. Yeah. Like that, but it's all how it's, it's social or it's all how their brain kind of interprets different things. And they just decide, Oh, I fall on this side of the debate. Obviously this is the only logical place to be. And this person's like, Oh, but they have the same thought. It's like crazy. And I, I don't quite know what to do with that analogy that I remember I was thinking about that a few weeks ago, but it's just like people, even even when your brain does interpret things the same way, you can still fall on complete opposite sides of the spectrum from somebody else. Yeah. Well, it's even just, I mean, this has been my experience too. Like even just interpreting the way someone's describing their opinion and just like not really understanding it. Right. It's just, you're, you're explaining to me what your uh, position is. And right. we could completely agree, like you're 100, saying. In fact, it's very likely that you we do could be completely. saying the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's just the words that you chose to use and the way that I interpret your words can still lead us to think that we're in opposition. Like that's happened to me, I think, a number of times arguing about, you know, video games online. It's like I go back and are like really look at what that guy's saying or read over it again. It's like, you know, I think we're not actually disagreeing really. Right. Like we're just looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective, but I think that we mostly anyways. It's just weird. It's It's weird. It that's it's a huge so problem hard. in our society though. It's so hard to like really um Again, like we have this heightened sense of empathy, right? Humans do. Uh, our evolved brain gives us the ability to make the attempt to, okay, how can I, can I see it from their point of view? Can I empathize with their pain? You right. Know, can I try to feel what they feel? We make these attempts to do it. It's like part of who we are, but we really honestly can't ever truly do that. Like yeah. we can, we we can say I've had a similar feeling as far as I know, because I've felt this way. I've never felt the same emotion you've felt, but it seems similar as we discuss it. So like we can sort of like relate, sure. but I can't ever really, I can't ever actually experience or feel the same emotion another person felt. So I can't, you can't ever really know anyways. Yeah. Cause you're lacking that context. The nature of like, like, uh, was it uh, Jonah who brought it up? Um, um, Jonah, the man. Yeah. Yeah. Jonah, the man, the nature of our existence is completely painted by this yeah. bias that you cannot ever really overcome. I don't know how we got onto this from, how is this tying into our topic? <laughs> Why do people demand realism? You know, what's funny. We haven't even mentioned final fantasy nine no. and I'm pretty sure final fantasy nine was one of the big 
like instigators for this whole thing because yeah. some people didn't like the art style after Final Fantasy VIII and they were like, oh, I was hoping it would just keep getting more and more real forever and realer and realer and realer all the time. And yeah. it turns out Final Fantasy IX's art style has held up very, very well in, in ways that maybe Final Fantasy VIII's hasn't. I don't know. Final Fantasy mm. VIII still looks fine. It's like an anime, I guess. But yeah. Final Fantasy IX had such a unique art style that, and Wind Waker also, the thing mm -hmm. you brought up before, that people remember it so well in a way that if it had gone for this super realism, it wouldn't have been uh, right. quite as... The tone good. wouldn't have felt consistent. Like, the tone they were going for in 9, yeah. I think, really suited the art style. Yeah. Um, and it would have felt inconsistent, I think, if they had made it look like FF8 in terms of, like, the way that those characters... Because it, it, was, it was more expressive. We talked about cartoons. Yeah. You can... And in anime, you can yeah. be more expressive with it, with the face, and you can like go way beyond realism. That's actually a good point. We talked about like Donald Duck cartoons, and they're like slamming each other with like sledgehammers and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like obviously, that's a formalist <laughs> idea. We get the idea of pain or embarrassment. Yeah, yeah. Eyes popping out of the head, like whoa, being scared. But if that were depicted realistically, that would be horrifying. It would be right? awful, yeah. So you can express an idea or a concept in a more formalist way, and everyone can laugh at it or like understand the concept of, oh, what an embarrassing situation. Or, oh, like that guy's really um, evil. Like he has like bad intentions. And just the face is like so like jacked, especially in anime. They do some really messed up like evil, yeah, and pain and torture. Like they can make faces look really like freaky, but you can't mm. you can't get that in like a person's face can't emote that way, right? So it's not realistic, but you still yeah. get the idea. It, the exaggeration still works. You still because it, it feels like it's that intense, even though it's not actually that intense. In real life. Anyways. This has been pretty all over the place. Oh, and yeah, I also have one other thought that I think we'd mentioned before we started streaming was that people think they want realism. Yes. People think they want realistic graphics and everything like that. And in the moment, sure, it's super fun. You get the newest, latest, greatest thing, right? But... It almost never holds up, and reality sometimes isn't, I don't know, just it's, this That's stuff exciting. doesn't always hold up forever, right? The best CG movie back 20 years ago doesn't look all that good anymore, but it's what people wanted then. But it's it's stuff that, like, if you focus elsewhere other than pure realism, you will likely create something that's more likely to be seen as timeless as opposed to just making whatever was in the moment and people look at it and they're like, Oh, that was the nineties. Yeah. That was definitely the 1990s. Yeah. And that's right. like, it's hard to get, it's hard to get past that. So wind waker mm -hmm. accomplished that in a way that, you know, maybe twilight princess didn't even yeah. though twilight princess looked cool for the time specifically it wind waker by far has the superior um, visuals, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for that. That's it? That's let's it? Talk about, let's talk about community stories. We have a Kickstarter here from Michael McConian. We, I think we actually uh, showed this off once before. Oh, before it was... 
because um, he had been working on it. But I think that the Kickstarter is now live. Let me put this on screen. It seems he's like making, doing well too. He's making a board game uh, called Dance Card, and um, I am going to let the video play. So I'm just going to like be quiet and just let his Kickstarter play. I will also put a link to this in the chat, and it will be in the video description, of course, later. But um, the the concept of this game is like it's a, a high school dance. and So it's a board game. Um, and you're trying to dance. So you have like a chosen character. You draw a card and like you're that character. And you're trying to dance with your three like assigned partners first. You're trying to be the first to dance with all three people. Uh, and whoever dances with all three first wins the game. So mm. it's like, a, anyways, it's like a high school dance. I'll kind of let... Um, let this video play and you guys can check it out. Hi, I'm Isabel, and I've got to tell you about Dance Card, the cool new competitive gateway game for two to four players. Dance Card is set during my high school homecoming dance and includes all the excitement and tension that goes along with it. Each player takes on the role of a student at Saxon High and the goal of the game is to dance with all three of your dance partners. The first player to do this wins the game. But who even are you? At the start of the game, you'll draw a dance card, which shows you the student you'll be playing. You can draw a dance card at random or pick the character you relate to most. There are 32 unique students to choose from, including yours truly. And each one of us has a one-of-a-kind special ability. Okay, it's time to play. Each player can take up to two of the following four actions on their turn. There are so many options. First, a player can take move action, which lets you pick a student on the board and move them to an adjacent location. You can pick any student, not just your own. Then you can take the dance action. That's my favorite, which lets you roll dice to try and impress one of your dance partners. There are so many ways to build up your dice pool. So, think strategically. Then, you can take a chat action with the friends of your partner. Doing this gets you a permanent bonus to dance rolls with that partner. So, it pays to be a social butterfly. And finally, you can take a nerve action, which lets you ditch any failure tokens from bad dance rolls. And gets you a few smooth move cards to help you do better next time. Pretty easy, right? But there's lots of room for strategy and a lot of challenges to get in your way. Close friends, pesky rivals, distracting crushes, killjoy chaperones, and other overlapping game mechanics will all affect your dance role. Dance Card even has special challenge cards for players who want to play in hard mode. With colorful art and a fun contemporary theme, Dance Card is a great way to get kids and new gamers into a hobby you love while still providing a challenge and hours of replayability for experienced players too. Pledge now and hit the dance floor. Oh, they're playing my song. All right. I gotta say, uh, that is a really impressive Kickstarter video. Um, Really nice work there, Michael. Uh, and they, they're they doing pretty well on the goal so far. They look to be getting pretty close to halfway um, there. But uh, it's it's a really unique concept for a game. I've never really seen anything like that before. Um, 
And uh, so if anybody's interested in, uh, in backing that project, um, go ahead and again, I'll, I guess I'll put the link in the chat one more time. I love the art style. Um, I think that it's, a, again, a really unique concept. I haven't really seen something like that before. I think it's something definitely worth um, worth supporting. Uh, yeah, hydrated Claw says too realistic. <laughs> too realistic. <laughs> it, it, it's post-traumatic uh, stress from your high school days <laughs> trying to dance with <laughs> yeah, people at the right. dance. <laughs> too real, man. Too real. Anyways, I think it looks great. It was really impressive. And the video was really impressive, too. Love those uh, After Effects uh, camera moves. Nice um, use of, uh, of light. Nice use of... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A focal... Not focal length. Uh, depth of field. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, really, really well done. Whoever put that video together did a really good job. So, um, big fan. I think that's worth supporting. Check it out. Kickstarter.com. All right, guys, that's it for today's podcast. Thank you for watching. Um, I think next week I'm going to try to bring on uh, uh, Games is Lit again. Games is Literature. Oh, cool. Yeah. He had a series of um, tweets the other week. I liked like the entire freaking thread. I was just like going through like, 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 like. But it was a really interesting sort of um, take on like somebody had, had was disparaging a video that he had made talking about like the stories in video games are like, don't matter or they're like, you know, they're stupid or whatever. Like uh, focusing on game narrative is pointless. Like what, what do you like, you know, just essentially like yeah. dismissing game narrative as being really right. bad and cringy and stupid. And uh, he had a really good response to that. I would love to have a full discussion with him on the idea of the importance of game narrative because he well, actually taught, good. he taught, uh, games as literature, which is where the, the name of the channel comes from. He taught that in like high school. He had like a whole class nice. where it was like a literature class, but they used game stories to like teach the literature. And at first, like the staff was like really against it and thought like, sure, oh, you know, what, what merit is there in this? But by the end of the semester, he said like, oh, these kids are like really learning the principles and uh, like really enjoying it because they were playing through a video game to learn that stuff instead of like reading a, a classic piece of literature like they would normally do, right? Instead of like reading, I don't know, uh, Fahrenheit 451 or uh, I don't know, the Odyssey or Shakespeare <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Uh, they were instead playing a video game to learn the same liter uh, literary principles. Um, so I'd like to have him on to discuss like his approach to that class and like what he learned through that experience. I thought it was a really interesting little thread, a series of tweets that he had. Um, so I'm going to reach out to him and, uh, cool. that'd anime, be awesome. I hope we can anime is literature. I just saw that from Colin. <laughs> anime is literature. Yeah, anime is literature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyways, that's what we're, I'm going to try and do that next week. I'll reach out to him. Uh, so look forward to that. Otherwise, yeah. you guys have a good weekend and peace out.